Turn with me to Psalm 73. There's a very real possibility of the believer in Christ operating in darkness. And today we're going to see a way that it manifests itself that is hopefully relatable to what we're seeing. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. I am going to do the best of my ability with God's grace to make this as clear as possible so that I am not misconstrued in any way. I will also say that anytime I open my mouth, I get misconstrued in many ways. <laughs> so I know that we're all going to end up at the end of this sermon in somehow, some way, some form. And if you have questions, please ask them. I encourage you to. If I start walking around, don't get nervous. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And they have set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people turn from this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Adonai, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those 
who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I have made Adonai Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's powerful. This psalm, if you notice at the top of it, is written by a man named Asaph. This is interesting because it's not a psalm as we would traditionally see by David or Solomon. We might be more familiar with their authorship in this book of psalms. Maybe even the occasional one attributed to Moses. But we find that there are a handful in here that are attributed to Asaph. Now, I love Asaph. If for no other reason that he not only played the harp, but he also played the cymbals. So he has a special place in my heart. I love it. I'm so thankful. I was telling somebody the other day, I'm so thankful that we don't have the worship wars here where people are getting ready to have a coronary over the fact that we have a drum set in the auditorium. Praise God. That's such a piddly thing to be worried about in the grand scope of eternity. So I love Asaph because he played the cymbals. Asaph was a Levite. He was considered part of the priestly order. Whether or not he ever served as a priest, we don't know. But we know that he constantly served in the tabernacle of David. Remember, the temple wasn't built until Solomon's time. He continually served in the tabernacle of David as one of the top three musicians that David had. Now, if you're familiar with drummer jokes, you always find that drummers are never framed as musicians. Well, that's wrong. Whoever said that's right. Who said that's right? Repent. See, you won't even admit it, coward. (laughs) What did the drummer get on his IQ test, slobber? I'm tired of jokes like that. (laughs) It's terrible. How'd the drummer get kicked out of the band? He said, guys, I got an idea for a song. Gone. Tired of that stuff. Drummers are people too. But thankfully to Asaph's credit, he's a symbolist. And what you find with him is not only was he one of three top musicians in David's court, he actually became the chief musician in David's court. He was commissioned with leading the holy worship that went on in the tabernacle every time they came together to offer sacrifices and praise God. So musically, he's got something to say here. And one of the things that I appreciate about the Psalms is that often they're raw. I think one of the reasons if you're ever going through a hard time or a time where you feel like you need to be filled up and you turn to the psalm, the reason is, is because you got somebody that's going through anguish that can resonate with your being. What I love about the psalms is the psalms dictate, sorry, depict to us that they're real people. And I think if any time right now in our history where we have the privilege of living right now for the glory of God, there needs to be something said about where we live in the human condition. So notice that Asaph begins this psalm by stating a truth. Number one, surely Elohim is good to Israel. That's a fact. God's propensity towards his people, and if we wanted to draw that into where we are in the here and now as an application, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you've believed in him, he's given you eternal life and he's put you in a standing of grace. Guess what? He is always favorable towards you. Always in a position of wanting to work good for you for His glory. He says here, to those who are pure in heart, 
Notice that there is a condition upon Israel for those who would seek his face, for those who actually desire righteous things. There's a lot of people that subscribe to Jesus, and there's a lot of people that subscribe to Jesus that are authentically saved. I won't discount that for a second. But there's a grand difference between people who have a relationship with God and people who desire fellowship with God. Some of that's by growth. Some of that's being hindered by disobedience and obstinance to his word. A lot of it's because we've held on to worldly principles and we refuse to grow. So I think it's important for us to recognize what is God's perspective in Asaph's situation. He wants good. He especially wants good for those that are pure of heart. In fact, good is part of who he is. We don't just say that the Lord is good, as in he desires good. The fact that the Lord is good and the fact that that's his person. In fact, let me say this. Apart from God revealing himself, we wouldn't know what good is. I think that's important. The only way that we're able to distinguish that something is evil, wicked, and wrong is because we've got a God that's manifested himself as good, right, and pure. That's the only way you can know it. When we talk about that he is the light, that isn't just fuzzy words. It's the idea that he actually exposes everything for what they truly are because he sets the standard in who he is. It's important that we have a high reverence, a high thinking about who God is. Look at verse 2. But as for me, I love this. Why? Because it's personal confession time for Asaph. Now think about what this is. This is something that was actually played in worship. So Asaph's vulnerability is going to be displayed for people over and over and over again. People are going to sing about this. They're probably going to sing about this in four-part harmony. You're probably going to have harps and lyres, not lyres like don't tell the truth, musical instrument lyres that are going to play. All kinds of instruments are going to be brought together in order to enhance this and be the soundtrack behind Asaph's confession. And what is this confession? God is good, but I've got a problem. Here's the problem. I was envious of the arrogant. Now, if you've got your marginal notes, you see that it says boasters, people who love to brag. We've been talking about bragging a lot lately. It's been something that's been pinholed in the idea of what justification by faith is, that there are certain things we can now brag in because of who Jesus is. But what's interesting here is Asaph was looking at the people around him, people who exist in arrogance, people who are, notice the next one, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, people who live apart from God, apart from the word, have discounted those things as not important, and he found something evil in his heart. Gosh, if only I could have kind of what they're enjoying here for a second. If I could just be in the midst of that for a minute, if I could just reap the benefits that it looks like they're getting right now, and it's looking upon a sinful situation, and here's what you find that's scary. It's not necessarily that you want those things in your spirit, who you truly are before God. It's the fact that you find that the flesh rises up in you and desires it, lusts after it. Now, if you've never felt like that, I would imagine that you're being incredibly dishonest 
or you were just born a couple of years ago. But all of us have seen the prosperity of wicked people at some point. Of how somebody got away with something. About how, how somebody made off with something. And good grief, how in the world could that have possibly happened? And we found something that was incredibly and insanely evil in us that we didn't want to face and that we didn't want to deal with, but was standing there going, you know what, if I had to be honest for a moment, I want that. Now here's the amazing thing that separates whatever it was that Asaph had, and we're going to see at the end of this, compared to what maybe some of us deal with today. And the amazing thing is, is that he had an understanding of God in such a way as to where he could open himself up and be vulnerable as a sinner, and he didn't care if people judged him. Think about this, guys. It's documented in God's Word. We've only sit here and read into three lines, really. Three verses. Three verses into this song. What did I find out? God is good, and Asaph's a sinner. Let me ask you this. Would you be okay with getting three lines into a song and somebody find out Jeremy's a sinner? Well, yeah, because I use my name and not yours. You're perfectly okay with that. How would you feel about that? What's amazing about this is nobody had to point out that Asaph was a sinner. He was willing to come before the Lord and admit publicly to everyone around him in repeated song, I found myself sinning in this way. I was going to slip in this. I found that temptation was so strong, it pushed my mind to desirous of wrong things. So now watch how he moves this forward. For I was envious of the arrogant... And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For, here's an explanation, verse 4. There are no pains in their death. These wicked people die too easily. They just pass away. They lived a luxurious life. They got everything they ever wanted. They didn't ever do without. They never had to sacrifice. And then they just left. No one ever took their life. It's almost like they just ceased to be. It was too easy for them to get out of this world. Asaph's got a problem with that. Notice also he says here, and their body is fat. Now is he mocking overweight people? Good Lord, in, the, in Jesus' name, I hope not. Right? But, what's the problem that he sees? Gluttony. There was no shortage of what they could possibly eat. Seemed like whatever they wanted was freely given for their disposal. They could take of anything that they wanted. Nothing was withheld from them. No one said no. There was no need for exercising self-control in their situation. They just went for it each and every time. How about this? They are not in trouble as other men. Or let's maybe phrase it this way. The world doesn't hate them like, they, like the world hates me. They get along with everybody. Maybe because Asaph took a stand in truth, maybe because of his high-ranking position, he found that there were a lot of people that despised him. Now, here's a place where you're going to misconstrue my words. 
but it's an example that comes to mind. If you're familiar with what today is, today is the president's birthday. But I've been amazed as I scroll through one of the feeds on Twitter to find how many people are wishing him dead. How many people have actually desired for a man to drop dead on his birthday? This is the evil world we live in. Now, am I associating him and his actions with God? No, don't misconstrue me. But I'm saying if you want to see a public display of how easily evil is entertained and how easily it is to get a crowd around them that wants to champion the death of someone. I don't know if you guys have recognized this. We live in a world that loves death. We live in a world that loves murder. We live in a world that thinks that blood is the way to get things done. This is the world we live in. And if you're like me, you try to shelter your kids from it. You try to discern. You sometimes agonize a little bit through what do you share? What do you not share? How do you still remain truthful and not lie to your kids? Because parents, let me tell you, they see through it. When you lie to your children, they know or will find out at some point you were a liar and they cannot trust you. You don't want that type of relationship with your kids. Don't lie to your kids. So you're trying to find some way in order to put truth before them and to navigate and coach them how to go through this, but not give them the full blunt of what's going on, the blunt force trauma of what the world dishes out. Everything is acceptable in this world. Notice what it says here. Nor are they plagued like mankind. For some reason, they just don't seem to have the same issues that Christians are struggling and suffering through. Anybody seen this six-block radius designated peace zone that they have in Seattle? Everybody seen this? Everybody followed what's going on there? Rape? That's peaceful. Anybody seen their marker board of desires and wishes? that they want the people outside of the blockade to give them. Does anybody else think that it's ironic that they're talking about we don't need any kind of boundaries and we should do away with guns, but yet they've set up boundaries here and they've got people walking the perimeter with guns. (laughs) Notice our world can't be consistent when it's wrong. It's hard to be consistent when you're wrong. And it's interesting that they've set this type of utopia up, which is something that's been really popular in teen novels lately and in our movies, the idea of a perfect existence, as long as it doesn't have God in the mix of it. And if you notice, when they get together, they can't even make it work. How many of you have seen the video of the street preacher in the midst of this community? A couple of you have. It's not good to watch. It's not fun to watch. But because the man is sitting there, standing there, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people in there, they give him a really good swift once over. Why? Because they're peace-loving and tolerant, that's why. But these are the types of things that it will cost you to be faithful to the Lord in this time. I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, don't quote me on that, but if it's coming to my mind correctly... All those who seek to live godly will suffer persecution. 
God and this world don't mix. This is why when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they have to be transformed into a new creation because the old creation can't do anything before God and will never do anything for God. It is hopeless. So God's got to start with something new. We can strategize all we want and how to make peace and make sure that every single person, regardless of skin color, has equal rights in society. But until we all humbly come before the cross, it's never going to happen. Asaph feels the tension in his day of seeing people who are prospering, trying to make it seem like they have it all. And he's ashamed, it seems to me, because something in him says, if I just had a fraction of that. Watch how he moves forward here, because now he changes. And notice you see that in verse 6 with the therefore. Now he wants to categorize for us What exactly are the underlying issues behind this? What fuels a person to get to these points where it seems like that they're untouchable, highly successful, affluent, prominent, and all ends are meeting for them in the world? Well, look what he says here. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Notice the first thing he brings up is attitude. Everybody see that? Pride. 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 Let me be crystal clear on this one. Pride is the exact thing that caused Lucifer to be cast away from the presence of the Creator. Pride. Nothing has ever been won on pride. I think one of the most terrible things I've ever heard, and you might think I'm silly for this and cool, that's fine, is talking about school pride. 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 Build yourself up. Work yourself up. You be you. It's all about you. It's not about you. One of the most dangerous things we've ever taught society is you're good on your own. You're not. The Bible never teaches us that. The Bible always teaches us helpless, weak, ungodly, desperately in need. And even when we think that there's a fracture of a glimmer of hope for ourselves, we actually find out that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Nothing is going to last. Nothing apart from Him. Aren't you glad you came to church for a good positive message this morning? But remember, guys, think back to this. God was very clear when He spoke to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Not in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not making much of yourself not arrogance. You will not find God's hand in those things. He does not work with that. Never, never. So notice, pride is their necklace, their adornment. The garment of violence covers them. There's their action. If that first one was attitude, now you've got action. Why? Because killing people gets things done. I think it's important that if you look out at our world right now, Don't sit here and look at them and say, well, one side's guilty. That's one of the greatest problems we could have. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's got blood on their hands. Everyone. Don't exempt a person. Notice it says here, their eye bulges from fatness. Now I know you're getting a little 
antsy here and maybe you're starting to sweat a little going, why does he keep bringing up fat people? That's actually not what he's saying here, okay? It's not what he's saying at all. In fact, if you look at the Greek translation here where it says their eye, the idea is is sin or iniquity. The things that they look after, the things that they're perceiving, where they're taking in the world around them, think of it that idea. Their eye bulges, increases is an idea, or notice if you've got your notes, goes forth from fatness. In other words, they're constantly seeking out, spying out where abundance is, so they take it for themselves. The idea is, is they have an insatiable desire that will never be met, sinning all the more in order to try to find satisfaction. Notice it says here, the imaginations of their heart run riot. Did he just say something about riots? No. Notice your side note, the imaginations of their heart overflow. The idea is is crazy and without any restraint. Anything that their heart could ever desire. Now we know about the heart in scripture. Yes, it's desperately wicked. Who could know it? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's how you find out what's truly in a person and what they value because of what their heart is settled upon. And the way that it manifests itself is right here. Okay? So the whole idea that this is dealing with is whatever they want of abundance, they're going to be talking about it always. And you will see the endless list of their depravity coming out. Notice. That deals with words. Watch how we've got four sections, four, four stickler things here with words. I don't know what to call them. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. Notice that you've got it brought it up actually five times. Mock, wickedly speak, speak. And then verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens, speaking against God and his abode. And their tongue, there it is again, parades through the earth. In other words, their speech is full of corruption and it's full of arrogance. Now, I think it's important for us to look at this. In verse 8, here's what could be misconstrued. Are you saying that any time that people who are oppressed speak out that it's considered wickedness? No, that's actually not what this is saying. I don't know why it's phrased weird. But if you notice in your marginal translation there, that the other way that this could be translated, and again, Hebrew grammar is a tricky, tricky thing, okay? So it's hard to move something from one language to another and get it just right. So this could be a translation, or there's another possible translation. If you look over in your margin, you'll see, or they speak in wickedness from on high, they speak of oppression. In other words, what you find is a common denominator in this situation is that people who already have a lofty and privileged position where the world is giving them everything and nothing is withheld from their desires, they actually turn around and make themselves out to look like victims in every situation. Now, we don't know anyone like that, do we? God forbid one of our politicians read this passage. I'm so tired of people who are taking free money under the table, acting like they are part of resonating with people who have had nothing all their lives. It's all for corruption, it's all for votes, it's all vanity. It's going to disappear just as clear as your breath does on a cold day. 
We cannot afford to live in a world where we buy into lies. Lies have nothing to do with God. And I think this is important. Regardless of how we try to justify that type of behavior, God doesn't need sin to get his job done. We are not a people that are called for allowance to idiocy. We are a people who are called to purity and righteousness and godliness. Why? Because that's the only way a light can shine. The way that you see the brightness of a light is because you put it in contrast to the darkness around it. The darker it gets, the brighter the light is. Asaph continues here. They have set their mouth against the heavens. Watch. Watch for how people are going to speak out against God. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Two years ago, some of us would have held this idea of persecution will never come to America. What do you think now? Because I'll tell you this. The Bible was telling us it was always going to happen. Always. Regardless of how noble some of the causes are that we have before us to see genuine, God wrought change to take place in the hearts and minds of some people. We're also going to see that when you try to assert the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of this, get ready. This is one of the greatest reasons why we need to hammer justification by faith more than ever right now. Because regardless of what the world throws at you and tries to knock you down with, it never jostles your position with Christ. Never. You are immovable to God because of what He has done. We may face dark days. I know what you're doing. You're praying for the rapture. All our post-millennial friends are sitting back going, pre-trib's looking real good right now. (laughs) I've seen some of them tweet it. Okay? But I promise you this, we won't be raptured until we're done with the work He wants us to do. I think one of the scariest things to be raptured out of here, and because of my obstinance, I didn't complete the work He put before me. To me, that's a much scarier proposition. So notice, there's going to be verbal attacks against heaven, and notice the next one. And their tongue parades through the earth. Boisterous. Everybody has got a voice, and there's very few people that have got anything worth listening to. But everybody's going to have something to say, and you watch. God, His Word, the Lord, His love for people, His sacrifice for people is going to come under fire quickly. See, it's things like this situation that put in perspective, yet while we were sinners... Christ died for us. And that's the perspective that's hard for the church to keep. Those who would ridicule our Savior are people that Jesus died for too. There's going to be a lot of us needing to take a step back from situations and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's going to become a very real prayer, I'm sure, for every one of us. So now, verse 10. 
And yeah, we're going through the whole song. We are. And it's eight after. I'm okay. I'm going to make it, guys. It's okay. I got my water. Therefore, this is probably one of the hardest verses in the Hebrew text to translate. His people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. I probably searched through no less than 25 to 30 commentaries trying to figure out what in the world is this saying. And you may say, well, isn't it very plain? It's not, because it doesn't make any sense with the context of what's going on. So after much digging and digging and digging and digging, the word his in verse 10 should probably be better understood as there because it could be misconstrued his as the idea of God's and it has nothing to do with God. It actually is an idea of a more plural understanding. His people should be probably there is the idea. And it's people that are part and parcel with the attitude and the makeup that would create such easygoing and wickedness that they see. So we may read it this way. Therefore, their people turn around. In other words, people that were going on a straight path for the situation got overcome with the wickedness and decided, instead of fighting it, why not joining it? We don't recognize how strong of a grip sin has on us until we seek to resist it. And for a lot of times, it's much easier instead of resisting the flow to just turn around and paddle along with it. It's a lot easier, but doesn't make it right. And so, okay, what does the second part of it mean? And waters of abundance are drunk by them. It probably should be translated this way. And water in abundance is swallowed down or gulped by them. And the imagery that it gives is a camel who just won't stop drinking. It's the idea of keep coming to it. Now, why is that? Because when a people who were going in a righteous path decide they're going to turn around and follow along with wickedness that congeals with everybody else, what you find is no matter what they can get, it's never enough. They take and take and take and take and take. Have you ever noticed that some of the most exhausting people in your life are takers and not givers? That's this idea. Because it's really not about the Spirit being manifest through them. It's just about them. It's all self-serving. It's all self-centered. Notice verse 11. They say, how does Elohim know? And is there knowledge with El Elyon, the Most High God? What are they doing? They're doubting His omniscience. God doesn't know. I'm just one person among many here. God will never know what I did or what I am doing. I'm going to tell you something. God's a genius. Hopefully that's not an understatement. But God knows it all. Not one person escapes. Not one sparrow falls without him knowing. He knows every hair on your head. How plentiful or few that may be. He knows them. He numbers them. He's fully aware. So no one escapes his knowledge. Verse 12, here's his summary statement. Behold, these are the wicked. If you want to know what the wicked look like, here it is. Here is a way that you hold it up and you assess your situation. And notice, don't forget Asaph's 
envy for how things are working out for them. He says, in all ways at ease, they have increased in wealth. Does that mean that rich people are wicked? No. Poor people can be wicked as well. But notice what he's saying here. Everything's going their way. This is the wicked. Now watch this, verse 13. He's questioning his devotion to the Lord. Look what he says. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. That's not about sanitizing. Just don't want to let you know real quick. Asaph's not wearing a mask here. He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Every day for Asaph is a struggle. Now think about this. He's the most high-ranking musician in King David's court. Do you think that was a good life? Could have been. But what's the problem here with him? Every day is a struggle. Every day is trying. There's no letting up. If you're a believer in Christ and every day is difficult for you because of what you're seeing around you, guess what? You're in great company. You're in great company with a really good cymbal player I know. And that's Asaph. Your lights went out in the back. Somebody move around. It's motion sensor. Don't worry. We won't tell you. We won't call you charismatic. You can move around back there. It's good. Notice, and chastened every morning. In other words, life has not been easy. For those who seek to live godly lives, it's not easy. It's hard because as soon as you demonstrate light in a wicked situation, you find that people learn what it is to hate very easily. And let me tell you something. You don't have to teach people how to hate. Everybody's already got a PhD in it. In fact, if you notice in everything that we're seeing today, it's really about choosing sides. Whose side do you want? Why? Because when you get people on your side, you can focus more on the people that you want to hate. Why does that fall absolutely flat in front of the gospel? Here's a reason, because God loved the world. There are only two sides, saved and unsaved. And guess what? God loves them both. So maybe that thinking needs to be corrected as well. Now watch this. He has a sober moment and he gives us a leadership principle. If I had said, I will speak thus, verse 15, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, if Asaph would have gotten up in front of people in the opportunities that he had to minister, and he started unfolding all of these things about how he felt, and if he let his heart run wild and say, you know what? I'm giving up, man. This is the way to go. I would have actually suffered generational repercussions. I would have affected not just people, but their children and their children and their children and their children. Why? Because when a leader speaks in this way, and if there's any condoning of wickedness whatsoever that has not been dissected and unfolded and dismissed according to the truth of God's word, all of a sudden you find that people think that sin is okay in the church. It's okay to participate in sinful things. The assembly of Israel would become defiled. Now here's the problem. People are perfectly capable of doing that on their own. What they don't need is that people who are directly answerable to God for leadership situations capitulating in the same sense. So if he would have spoken this manner, everybody would have got messed up. Look what he says here. Verse 16. 
When I pondered to understand this, when I had to mull it over and meditate on it in my mind, look what he says. It was troublesome in my sight. In other words, the conclusion he kept coming to was, it ain't right, it ain't right, it ain't right. And the way I'm feeling about it is not right at all. What my flesh wants to do in this situation is not right. I don't know about you guys, but one of the most scariest things I can think of regarding evil is the evil that rests inside of me. Not the evil in the world. They can tempt you all day long, but they can't make you sin. Only I can make me sin. And if you don't think that that's scary, your view of sin is not high enough. Because it cost Jesus his life in order to bring me back into an acceptance with God. That's serious. Sin is serious. And notice that Asaph is struggling with it. Now, does everybody see verses 1 through 16 are full of darkness? Does everybody see this? I mean, you all seem pretty thoroughly edified right now and built up. You're ready to worship and run the aisles, I can tell. We're going to calm some of you down. But verse 17 is worth it. Because here's where the light comes on. All we're seeing is darkness. All that's painted is darkness, but now it's time for the light to come on. And here's what it is. Until there came a moment when his thinking stopped and something changed. What changed? Until I came into the sanctuaries of God. There I perceived their end. Now think about this, guys. What you find in verses 1 through 16 is that Asaph's F-train was backwards. He's letting his feelings run amok. He is tempted to subscribe to them as if they are true. And what it took was getting before the presence of God to re-correct his thinking about life, reality, existence, and truth. So let me say this without a shadow of a doubt. Notice he didn't come to church and he got right with God. He got before God and his thinking got right with God. And let me be very plain about this. Right here is where you get right with God. If you have a prayer closet, awesome. I commend you on that. Don't tell me about it or you'll ruin your reward in heaven. Okay? But if you do, that's fantastic. But God speaks to his people through his word. This is the whole reason why he's given it to us. He's given it to us in perfection. It's never been proved wrong whatsoever. And people have had 1,700 years to do that, and they still haven't managed it. If you want to hear God speak audibly, then you read this out loud. But this is how God speaks to his people. So Asaph had to come back to a brass tacks understanding of who God is. And when he finally got his thinking right before God, he recognized one thing. How is this going to end? I was so busy getting caught up in the now, I didn't think about where it was going to go. Does everybody see that? Let me tell you this. One of the greatest tricks that Satan has on his agenda for the church is to get you so caught up in now that you forget about where you're going to go. If he can get you obsessed with the current problem, he will get your eyes off of the already solution. 
if he can get you all wound up and how you're currently feeling about any particular thing. And it's not that feelings are bad or invalid, but they're not trustworthy because they will betray you. But if we get all wrapped up in that situation now and threaded into the drama of what's going on now, then you forget the guarantee that is out ahead. This is why we're commanded. Put your eyes on Christ. Seated at the right hand of God. Don't look at the stuff here. Regardless of what we think, there's nothing worth looking at. See? Thank you for sparing my feelings and not amening that. Look around. I know it sounds hopeless. And let me be honest with you, in the grand scheme of thing, grand scheme of things, ultimately it is. If the impact from the church with the indwelling Christ does not step into a situation and speak eternity into now. God loves this world. He's not going to save it. The opportunity for the world to be saved was forfeited years ago in a garden. So he's not interested in saving this world. He is interested in saving the people of this world. But this is already a ship with a slow leak. Thank the Lord we already have some pretty awesome life rafts. Praise God for it. But we are not called to abandon the ship until the work is done. Thinking had to get straight about God so that he could think clearly and move forward. And what's the first thing? This isn't going to end well for those people who subscribe to those things. I need to take note of that. Look how he moves on here. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. They're not going to escape God. You cast them down to destruction. They're going to have to answer before him. How they are destroyed in a moment. When their end comes, it's going to be swift. It's going to be quick. You're going to blink and it's going to be gone. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. And notice this. Oh, Adonai, when aroused, you will despise their form. Two things. Adonai. Does anybody remember what the word Adonai means? Master. Notice that's a very serious word to invoke as far as what you call God. Master. Look what it says. You will despise their... Everybody see that word form? What's your marginal note say? Image. Everybody think back to Genesis 1. Let us create man in our image, in our likeness. Notice, the wicked have so marred their image to what they were originally designed to look like in mirroring God to this world that God will despise their image. Now here's what's amazing about this. This is all God responding to wickedness that's been created. This isn't anything that God did in the situation. He's simply responding to the situation. Let's move forward. Another confession time. Here's his self-evaluation, verse 21. When my heart was embittered, when I got ate up because I saw how wicked people were prospering, and I was pierced within, then I was senseless, notice, not thinking straight, and ignorant, not thinking anything of value, not thinking of anything with substance, not thinking of anything that was lasting is the idea. 
Notice what he says. I was like a beast before you. I was roaming around like an animal. Anybody ever hung out with animals lately? Some of you got some, not people. I'm talking about actual animals. You look at them, you're like, what are they doing? Here's the thing. They're doing whatever they want to do. They're doing whatever they want to do to serve them, and they will keep doing it. I hate cats. All right. <laughs> Verse 23. Regardless of how messed up his thinking was, look what he says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Get this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Regardless of how messed up and out there my thinking got, regardless of how caught up I got in the moment, I'm continually with God. He never said, that's enough, and snipped the cord. Nope. We are so tethered to him, we cannot be moved. We cannot be moved because of Jesus Christ. Get this. That can never be taken from you. Look what he says here. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. He never leaves. You have taken hold of my right hand. You ever been in a serious situation and you take hold of your loved one's hand in order to get some sort of peace, stability, comfort in that moment? I'll never forget when we made the decision to go out and, and, and plant a church. Very first thing I did was grasp my wife's hand. Why? Scared to death. God, what in the world are you doing? Ended up being one of the best decisions we ever made. But you know what? I knew where to go for some comfort in that situation. I got to grab somebody's hand. Get this. Look what it says. You have taken hold of my right hand. It's not that Asaph necessarily reached out for God. It's that God reached out for him. Everybody see that? Look what it says here. Verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me. Million dollar question. I don't have that. 25 cent question. What is the counsel that God guides us by? His word. Everybody see that? By your counsel, you guide me. By God's word, Asaph will be guided. He has no answers in himself. He has no strategy in himself. He doesn't know where to step next in himself. Guess what? God will tell him, stop freaking out. God's grabbing your hand. God's going to lead you. Look at the next part here. And afterward, receive me to glory. Your glorification is certain. He's going to guide me. He's going to hold my hand. And he's going to make sure I get safely home. Period. Does that sound good? Now here's what's amazing. Because here to me is the most pivotal verse in this entire thing. And here's the conclusion that Asaph is brought to. Whom have I in heaven but you? Look what it says. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You know what I wrote next to my Bible when I, when I went over this for the first time? Can I say that? Can you say things like with the Apostle Paul that all things that I would gain on this earth are rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord? Can you say that? Or is there stuff that you're tempted to be tethered to here? that is causing you to forsake intimacy with your Lord. Let me tell you this. When you forsake intimacy with Lord, you forsake the confidence that he's already given you. It's not that it went away. 
It's not that the certainty went away. It's the fact that we are willingly forsaking it when we are tied to temporal things. Look what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. Because that's where the problem was to begin with, right? It may wear out. It may come to nothing. I may get terrible, envious desires like this. But look how it moves forward. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion, look at it, forever. Regardless of how frail this temporal tent is, the strength comes from God. He is my portion. Do you know what it means to have a portion? Right? It's when somebody makes really good mashed potatoes and you bring your plate around and they put some on there and you smile and you say thank you. And every red flag in you goes, that's not enough. More. Now I'm going to reveal a little bit of myself. How many people here like peas with your mashed potatoes? Raise your hand. Okay, you are the elect. Because not only do they taste good, but when you got them in mashed potatoes, they don't fall off your fork, do they? It's a genius meal. It really is. I was out mowing the yard one day. I came in. This is no lie. And I said, hey, what are we having for dinner? I made this, this, and I made mashed potatoes and peas. Man, it's like the Holy Spirit just completely (laughs) saved me again. It was insane. What? I didn't care what else we were having. That whole plate needed to be covered. (sighs) I gave my son my glory fan. I can't wave it right now. I have two microphones, Kevin. All right. But God is my strength of my heart, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's that say? He's willingly yours. Get that. The God creator of all things is willingly mine. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far off from you will perish. And you've destroyed all who are unfaithful to you. They'll meet their end, but don't miss it, guys. Here it is. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What do you think that means, nearness? It's speaking of intimacy. The intimacy that I have with God is my good. If you want to know where the central place is of the good that's going to come out of my situation. It's the idea that I am locked in with God, focused in, close to Him. I've sacrificed for the sake of moving closer. Can you do that? Yes, you can. It will cost you now. It'll be so worth it in the end. That's the whole idea of holiness, being set apart under that. I have made Adonai Yahweh my refuge, my master, the self-existent one, the place where I take shelter. He's the one that I'm hiding under. He's the one that I'm putting between me and everything that is pelting against me so that I will not be hit, so I will not be moved. And now here's the end. Watch this. For what reason? Why? Is it just because we get warm, fluffy spiritual butterflies going on? No. That I may tell of all your works. 
because the outcome of it becomes a testimony of what you tell the world. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready right now? Are you willing right now to speak to this world that obviously doesn't have a clue where they are going? I was going to say where in the world they are going, but good grief. That's that's double heaped on top of one another. It makes total sense, but it's dumb for me to say. I rationalize everything. My life is a footnote. Whatever, moving on. But the idea here is, are you ready now? Is Asaph messed up? Yeah. But how did he get his thinking back? I had to come before God and I had to think about what does the end look like? And because of what the end looks like, I recognized my sinfulness and that I was nothing before God, that God is everything on my behalf and everything I could desire ever, truly he is going to fulfill in me. And he's not just giving it to me in that way, but my intimacy with him is going to boil over into a verbal explanation of the fellowship I have with the creator of all things. Is that not the message everyone needs to hear now? Why is the door so wide open for evangelism and nobody's walking through it? If it's because you're envious of this world, here's a correction. If it's because you're scared, think about the end in mind. Some of the greatest admiration I have in this town is for these men who stand on these corners in the downtown and hold up these signs. Sometimes I think they could have chose better verses, but they're doing it. It may not be the way that you would approach it, but they're doing it. What motivates that? Well, they're highly legalistic and they want to make sure that they look extra holy before all people. Is that why? Or could that be a rationale that they bring up so that we're not out there on the sign doing on the side of the road doing it too with the sign? Or could it be the fact that they see the end? And let me tell you this. If we care about people, as much as we love ourselves. Isn't it worth it to try to engage that conversation, to pray, God, please open the door so that I can be used by you to give the message of your son, of which you have the power to bring people from darkness to light. Do the lights need to come on for you Now, are they on? Do we get it? Let's pray. Father, our heart and our flesh may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. You are abundant in grace. You've supplied us with more than we can even think about. And God, how sick the world is apart from your truth now. 
Father, I pray that we would see our hearts for what they truly are. That this would be a time to confess before you if any wickedness has been brought to the surface. If we look at a portion like this in the Scripture and say, well, you know, that'd be really nice, but that's just not me right now. I'm just not willing. This is not a day and age where we can stand to be ignorant, Lord. Thank you for your word that saves us from those types of choices. Thank you, God, that fellowship with you is our good, that you are our shelter and our shield, and that our intimacy with you is to boil over into words of life for those around us. We live in a world that loves death. I pray, Father, that we would be ministers of your light. Father, we thank you for this time together. Praise your name. Amen.